0: So, I bring you greetings, really, from the whole Chosen People staff, because even though you support Sahavnai, the Community Bible Church has always been a Chosen People friend through the years. And I would love to share my testimony with you, but I don't have enough time. And so, what I'd like to do instead is to share our Founders testimony with you. Because in 1892, Rabbi Leopold Kohn came from Hungary to the lower east side of Manhattan. And you ready for this? He heard a Polish Presbyterian missionary to the Jews sponsored by Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church preaching the gospel in Yiddish at a Dutch Reformed church. (laughs) Happens all the time, really. And so he was uh, a Hasidic Jew from... uh, from Hungary and had studied at one of the uh, most well-known yeshivas. I'm so glad I'm not in Iowa so I don't have to explain everything to you. So he studied at this uh, one of the most well-known yeshivas in uh, Hungary. And there was a very interesting yeshiva. It's it's one of the largest Hasidic movements today in the world. It's called Satmar, if you can believe it. A Hasidic movement named after St. Mary. Most of them don't know. Anyway... So it uh, began in the little town of St. Mary in Hungary, which of course was a Catholic country. At the time. And so it's a very mystical movement. Um, it's a very, I'll use a big word, a very, Dick can explain it next week. It's a very eschatological movement. So they were, they were I mean, they were like the Hal Lindsays of their days. I mean, they were they were looking forward to the last days and were very specific about end time prophecies and so on. And so... Rabbi Cohn was sort of on a messianic coming hair trigger, you know? And remember, traditionally in Judaism, everything we think about the second coming, Jewish people think about the first coming, if they're more orthodox in their belief, not reform or conservative and so on. So there's a literal Messiah coming to conquer, set up his kingdom. All that stuff is what I was raised to believe, growing up in a more orthodox synagogue. And Rabbi Cohn believed it in spades. And so the day came as a young man, his early 20s, when uh, actually being Hasidic, of course, he already had two or three children. And so he decided to come to the land of great opportunity, the golden land, as Jewish people described it in in Yiddish in those days, New York City. And so he got off at Ellis Island, came and joined some of his relatives and other Hasidic Jews from Hungary on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, was on his way walking down the street towards his rabbi's house and saw this big sign at this church that said, ready, sermons for Jews. (laughs) I don't think I would do that today, but it said sermons for Jews. And inside this guy was preaching. and, uh, And, you know, he caught wind that it was about the coming of the Messiah. And he was interested in the coming of the Messiah like everybody from his background was. And he stayed and he listened. Now, it was in a church, so he couldn't go in, obviously. So he stayed outside, listened through the door. And then at the end, he kind of hung around a little bit because he would have been noticed in the way he was dressed and so on. But he hung around a little bit. And the guy came out who had been preaching. And he was a 21-year-old missionary to the Jews. But he was a graduate of a good seminary in Scotland, the Free Church. Right, the British are affirming this. So, and I'm not going to talk about Brexit though this morning, if that's okay. if that's okay. Anyway, so uh, Rabbi Kohn did graduate this seminary. I know for sure because I wrote to the officials at the Free Church Seminary in Edinburgh, and I asked if Leopold Kohn had graduated, and they wrote. Back, yes. And my next trip over there, I went to the librarian who had been corresponding with me, and I said, Any chance I could see his grades? <laughs> wait, wait, here you go. They said, No, that's against our policies. I said, He's been dead a long time. He said, it Doesn't matter, privacy, you know. I said, Okay. <laughs> and uh, so I'm sure he passed everything. So, anyway, so after he got saved, he went to the same school in Scotland. And uh, he, of course, after he became a believer, after reading the Yiddish New Testament that this guy had given him, was uh, really praying for his wife, Rose, and their kids to come to faith. And, uh, you know, some of us get Dear John letters. I hope not. He got a Dear Leopold letter. You know, you're a Christian. That's nice. Go find another wife. And so he begged her to join him in Scotland. She came over. They got saved. They all got baptized together. And then they headed home after a year's study to the true holy land where I now live and where I was born, Brooklyn, New York. And almost immediately, he went from being a sort of Jewish, kind of Presbyterian, sort of Scottish Presbyterian to Baptist. Uh, he just, it was very hard to follow the bouncing ball. But the Baptist kind of sponsored Leopold Cohn when he came into Brooklyn. And he cleaned out an old horse stable in the Brownsville section of Brooklyn. And in 1894, founded what was now what's now called Chosen People Ministries, what was then called the Brownsville Mission to the Jews. Then he moved from Brownsville, uh, Brooklyn, to Williamsburg, and we became the Williamsburg Mission to the Jews. And then he moved eventually to Manhattan, and we became the American Board of Missions to the Jews. And of course, in 1982 or so, we felt that that was too long, and so we changed it. To Chosen People Ministries, which was our magazine, which some of you get, and so Leopold Cohn was a, a, a real hero. Uh, I've uh, um, I've become friends with the people who uh, who now occupy the Williamsburg building. It's a Spanish Pentecostal church, and uh, it was in that building actually that he baptized over a thousand Jewish people. And so God really gave great fruit for. Uh, his ministry. He died in 1937, turned it over to his son, uh, Joseph Hoffman Cohn, who died a year after I was born in 1953. And I am now the seventh leader of Chosen People Ministry. And we are just concluding the celebration of our 125th year of ministry. And so it is very much on my mind and heart. We just had a big banquet uh, in Brooklyn, and it was a wonderful celebration. And God has really uh, blessed the work. And we've been doing various kinds of celebrations all year. But at the banquet, we pivoted. And now we're headed for year 126, beginning in 2020. And uh, it's really cool to be, to be the president of a, an organization like that because nothing's really changed, which is wonderful, really. Same gospel, same Jesus, same uh, vision, to reach Jewish people everywhere with the gospel. Um, And, uh, you know, how many people can say that, you know, after 125 years they've stayed faithful? And there's been a lot of pressure on us as Jewish believers, let me tell you. No matter where I turn, someone's telling me, look, make up your mind. You're either a Jew or a Christian. So which one are you? I say, yes. And and that really comes out during the holidays. Really comes out when I when I when I first became a believer. I was a bad Jewish boy living in San Francisco, and uh, then got saved. And uh, having been raised in a religious kind of an orthodox modern orthodox Jewish home, um, I was only six years away from my bar mitzvah when I got saved. And so I was still pretty close. To the religion, although I wasn't very religious, um, but I was. I went to Hebrew school four days a week. I mean, for like six years, and so I mean, I was really steep. And uh, so, did I practice Judaism? Well, if I did, I never got it right. But I, 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 I was, and I never thought of myself as not Jewish. I mean, no matter how long my hair went, grew, I was still Jewish. I could still put a yarmulke on long hair. So you know, and. But after I got saved, it was uh, I was the only Christian I knew <laughs> in Northern California, <laughs> aside from my two best friends who were Jewish who got saved. So I was the only believer I knew, never mind the only Jewish believer I knew. And so I, one day I went back to my one of my old haunts in Haight-Ashbury, literally. And uh, everything It was still, it was 1970, so things were still going strong. And uh, I met these young people uh, who were witnessing to hippies, of which I was one. And so they started sharing the gospel with me. And I kept telling them, I said, you know, because I was only a believer for about two and a half, three weeks when this happened, uh, I got saved in early November, and this was right before Thanksgiving 1970, which is another reason why I'm telling you the story. And so I began trying to explain to them, but I didn't have the words to tell them that I was actually like them. Now they were a Southern Baptist group from Golden Gate Baptist Seminary who were doing their Christian service assignment by and they were all from the south with virtually with crew cuts witnessing to long haired hippies in Haight Ashbury. And so to me they looked like they were from outer space. And and but but I didn't know how to express myself because I, I Listen, I believed in Jesus. I believed he was God in the flesh. Overnight, I had become Trinitarian, which is not easy for a Jewish person to do. And I believed everything. And, and I even read the New Testament through once. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. And, and so I was, I was with it, but I didn't know what to say. And so I just, you know, kept saying, I, I think we're on the same page And he just kind of kept, I think he needed to lead people to the Lord for an assignment, (laughs) you know. And so he kept talking to me. Then finally, he said, well, listen, why don't you come back next week for Thanksgiving? I said, what do you do? I mean, I was very suspicious as a Jewish person, you know. What what do you do? I mean, like, do you offer people on an altar anywhere? I mean, I just had no idea. I had never really met a Christian Gentile with a southern accent in and I was scared of this person, actually. And, and so I said, what, what do you do? He said, well, we eat turkey. I said, all right, that's good. I can do that. And we rent an apartment over there. It's like a little family. I said, okay. And so I went the next week, had the best Thanksgiving, great food, and believe me, I was skinny, and I needed a good meal. And so it was a, it was a great dinner. And you know what they did? Unbelievable. They prayed before they ate in English. I prayed before I ate quickly. In Hebrew, the longer pl- prayer for Jewish people is after you eat, which by the way, makes more sense. So you know. And so I was amazed because they were they were talking to God just like I was now and uh, using English instead of Hebrew. And so I was really impressed. And I, I really sensed God's presence there and the pie. But I so I really enjoyed it. And as we're walking out, this really uh, person that I was now getting to know a little bit put his arm around me and he said, you know, Mitch, if you think Thanksgiving's good, wait till you experience Christmas. I said, excuse me? Because <laughs> I was raised celebrating, you know, the, the other holiday. The, the protest event, Hanukkah. And so... And it's when we remembered that though a majority, except in New York, though, though I mean, a minority, though in New York, <coughs> that still, you know, it was very Jewish and we were not going to be dominated by the Christians. And, uh, and so <coughs> he said, what's wrong with Christmas? I said, I don't know. I've never celebrated it. <coughs> I said, how many presents do you get? He said, one. I said, forget it. I get eight. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) And so so I said, I'm going to have to reflect on this, think it through. And that was the beginning of my journey. uh, And it did more to affirm me in my Jewishness than anything. Because I realized that this would now be a struggle throughout my life. Because the way people who are not mostly nominal people, the way most nominal Christians and nominal Jews understand the difference between the two is they ask you, what holidays do you celebrate? I mean, it's, it's the way to peg somebody. What are they going to do? Ask you about, so what do you emphasize, the imminence or transcendence of God? You know? You know, so I mean, they just want to know, you know, when you light lights, what side is it for, you know? And, and so I realized that this was now going to be a journey for me. And it's still a journey. I, I, I've I married a Jewish believer. We've never known what to do with Christmas except receive presents. <laughs> and so we've never known what to do. Finally, God, I mean, God must have heard my prayers because he solved the whole thing. Our first daughter was born on December 25th. And we've been celebrating a birthday on that day now for 35 years. This will be the 35th year. And it's made life so much easier. When she was about four, we had to let her know that they were not decorating for her birthday. But uh, theres a, I love the incarnation. I love Jesus. Believe the story. We say story, but it's truth. Truth. I mean, I I believe it with all my heart. However, you know, we we don't do trees, you know, and stuff. We we do menorahs. And, I mean, they're both on biblical holidays. I'll prove it to you. Go back, read the Gospels, and if you can find one instance where Jesus celebrates Christmas, (laughs) I'll give you a present. Okay? And Hanukkah, of course, is in the book of of Maccabees, and so it never made it into the Old Testament. In fact, Hanukkah is more biblical than Christmas. I'm not arguing for all of you to do Hanukkah. However, it is more biblical because in John chapter 10, Jesus was walking on the porticoes of the Temple of Solomon's Temple in the winter, and it was all about the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah. So it's a biblical holiday just the most Jewish people would not accept it as biblical because it's in the other Testament. But I would. <laughs> and so, no kidding, when people ask me, so what do you celebrate, Christmas or Hanukkah? I do say yes. Because, I mean, as a believer, it's hard to avoid Christmas. not that I'm looking to avoid it. You know, I, I enjoy it, especially going out and looking at all the <clears throat> incredibly decorated homes in the Italian sections of Brooklyn. Take, I take my kids on a tour, you know. And then, of course, I celebrate Hanukkah. And what do I celebrate, Passover or Easter? Well, yes. You know, why not? The only time I, I get confused is when, because of the juxtaposition of the calendars, is when is when Easter comes before Passover. I have a hard time with the resurrection coming before Jesus died. I don't know about you. And so... I I love the holidays, but I see the holidays not as differentiating between Jews and Gentiles, but as ways of celebrating and celebrating the truth of God's word, the truth of his promises, and the truth of fulfillment. Because there's no doubt that the promises and the holidays in the old, if you view them as promises, which I do, are fulfilled in the new. So what could be more biblical? and celebrating these, so I'm going to take you on a quick journey. And uh, so Leviticus chapter 23, you already read it. I'm sure some of you already memorized Leviticus 23. It's one of your favorite passages in the entire Bible, I know. And uh, so we're going to look at verse one real quickly, and then we're going to we're going to jump past it. So I'm going to. Is that on? Well, it worked. You know, that's the first time that's ever worked. First time. Okay. So, we're just going to look at Leviticus chapter 23. So, uh, the Lord spoke again to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. Let's get it straight right away. These are not the feasts of Jehovah. Because one of these feasts is a fast. Okay? So, if you've got a Bible that calls them feasts, they're not real feasts. Actually, the Hebrew word, uh, is moed, M-O-E-D, and the Hebrew word moed simply means appointment. It's just a common word for appointment. But I think when the translators got hold of it, they felt mm, appointment's not doesn't have, you know, doesn't have the biblical, uh, you know, more spectacular uh, meaning, you know, and so it's now appointed times. So now we take two words to describe one word in Hebrew because I think that they wanted to add some weight to it. But for me, there's plenty of weight, because when God makes an appointment with you, you want to keep that appointment, don't you? So God made one appointment with Israel during the week, the Sabbath, and made seven appointments during the course of the year with Israel. That's not a lot of God to ask, but it's once a week and seven times a year. And so the Lord's appointed times are these. Now... The uh, festivals are very simple to understand. There's four in the spring, if you live in North America, and three in the fall. If you live in South America, it is reversed. I'm married to an Argentine, so I just... So you've got, got four in the spring, and you got three in the fall. And each one of these festivals point to something about God's character, his plan, his purposes, and then they usually look back and they usually look forward. Got that? His plan, his purposes, his character, they look back in order to look forward. Now, the Jewish calendar, uh, well, what can I say about the Jewish calendar? It's the right one. So what are you going to do? Follow a calendar that was invented by a bunch of heathens or follow the Jewish calendar, which came from Sinai. I'll let you decide. Uh, now, in the Old Testament, unfortunately, the Jewish people rarely celebrated the Jewish holidays. Rarely celebrated the Sabbath, even. Rarely celebrated uh, Passover. But you know when the Jewish people were celebrating a holiday because it was evidence of a revival in the Old Testament, in Old so when, the, when there was a revival uh, under Josiah, or whoever, when there was a revival, then the Jewish people celebrated uh, the festivals. But the Jewish people in general did not. In fact, I would say secular Jews today celebrate the festivals more faithfully than the Jewish people in the Old Testament. Which doesn't say much. Now, uh, the Sabbath is in verse 3. So just look at it real quickly because if you look at the Sabbath, you'll understand all of them. For six days, work may be done. When I was uh, writing a uh, theological statement to get accepted as a professor at the seminary I graduated from, Talbot, which because we had this extension in Brooklyn on uh, um, training missionaries to the Jews, which is going really well. I'll tell you more Sunday school. They wanted me to fill out fill out the uh, doctrinal questionnaire, and you know I haven't been in seminary a long time. And so I said, I believe in a literal seven-day Sabbath. Well, I meant a literal seventh day. I mean, you know what I mean, right? Yeah. So I get a note back from the secretary of the theological department. She said to me, Dr. Glazer, I would imagine you meant six-day creation, didn't you? I said, yes. It was not a seven-day creation. The seventh was just the Sabbath. Just the Sabbath. Okay, so please don't get that wrong. Okay, because all creation, all creation activity, actually stopped on the seventh day, and that's the point. Now you have to be a musician to understand the Sabbath, because uh, in, on the Sabbath, well, let's take a book. How many of you think that God was tired and therefore rested on the seventh day? It's just okay, but we pass well, typically when we study the Bible, you know, we go so quickly, and so why in the world would God celebrate? The Sabbath. Why would he rest on the seventh day? Well, if you're a musician, you understand it. Because if you read a musical score, you have rests. And a rest, every musician knows and I'm a musician. Every musician knows it's a time to rest your fingers if you play guitar. Or to take a sneak a quick breath if you're doing the vocals. Or, what it really means is you call attention to what just happened and you pause so that you can transition to something new. And that's a Sabbath rest. The Sabbath is the day when God said, man, this is very good. And he rested to give attention to what happened and to start fresh. Admittedly, it was not a good start, but it was a start starting fresh. And this is exactly what Jewish people do during the Sabbath. We remember that God is the creator, and because he's the creator, he has the right to demand that we follow his Torah. The God who made us is the God who knows the best way for us to live. You see that? And so actually, every Sabbath is a moral, spiritual, and character recalibration for Jewish people, where we remember who's who. We're the created. He's the creator. Um, And and again, uh, the Sabbath is uh, very important uh, in Jewish life, and it really marks Jewish life. And it is the marking point, by the way, of the Mosaic Covenant. Circumcision is the marking point of the Abrahamic Covenant, but the Sabbath is the marking point of the Mosaic Covenant. And so it's a great sign intended by God to the world when Jewish people rest on the Sabbath, that the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God. And when Jewish people failed to keep the Sabbath, which was why God was upset, when Jewish people did not keep the Sabbath, then the statement was being made that we are like everybody else. And therefore, our God is like every other God. And that was the basis for such harsh judgment on the Sabbath. Because it was viewed as leading the, other na- the nations of the world towards idolatry. And so it's very, very harsh. But again, it looks back to creation. It also looks forward because every Jewish person knows, and Leopold Cone knew it, that one day the Messiah will come. I would say return. But the Messiah will come and he will establish his kingdom. And in that day, we will finally have true Sabbath rest. And that's what we're going to experience when Jesus returns, amen? We will finally have not just rest for our souls, but we will have rest for the entire world. And that day is coming. We look back to look forward. Now, just real quickly, you have three spring festivals, Passover, first fruits, and the festival of weeks. We call it Shavuot, Feast of Weeks. And uh, each one of these uh, point to different aspects uh, of God's redemptive plan. Uh, Passover, to the death of Jesus, right? First fruits, to the resurrection of Jesus. It happens on the day after the Sabbath of Passover. He dies on Passover. He raises on, guess what? The holiday of first fruit. Coincidental. Paul knew it in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the first fruit from among the dead. And then... Third, we have another accidental coincidence, and that's when God sent the Holy Spirit on the Feast of Weeks upon 120 Jewish people gathered, believers gathered in a room in Jerusalem, waiting for the power on high to go out and fulfill the great commission that Jesus had given to them before he ascended into heaven. Just a coincidence, of course. You know. Well, why? Well, Shavuot was the. Uh, was a harvest festival. we read the book of Ruth. and what are the disciples to go do now that they're filled with the Holy Spirit? Go out and harvest. We have power to harvest. So there's lots of meanings to these three festivals. The fall festivals, feast of trumpet, of course you know, and that is the festival where we blow that terrible ram's horn that scares the death out of children. And if it doesn't, anybody who tells me the shofar sounds good has obviously never listened to one. And then the second holiday is probably the most important of the holidays, and that's the Day of Atonement. That's the day when the high priest went in front of the Holy of Holies, in front of the mercy seat, and he sacrificed the blood of a bull and goat to get forgiveness of sin for all Israel because there may have been sins that Israel committed that were not yet atoned for. So this atones for all the sins that were not atoned for, which, by the way, in my opinion, think about yourself, okay? So what percentage of sins do you think you were aware of before you got saved? 100%? 90%? What percentage of sins that you commit are you aware of now? 110%. 50%, aren't you glad that Jesus died for all our sins? One sacrifice for all people, once for all, for all sin. That's the glory of the gospel. Because let me tell you, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you would not be aware of all your sins. And even if you were, you'd say, well, you know what? Sheep are expensive, you know and uh and and I don't think that one's worth it, worth it except when you see it from God's perspective because he's perfect. The last one I'm going to skip that. The last one is Tabernacles and that's in verses 33 through 44. And during Tabernacles, we celebrate the last harvest of the Jewish year. It's usually called the harvest of fruit and it's when we celebrate the uh, the Feast of Trumpets, that we have two unique features. Uh, We look back to the wilderness wanderings and how God kept us not only in in food, but also God kept us sheltered. And the way he sheltered us was in booths. And so we live in booths during the Feast of Tabernacles. And we read about that just, just before. And we not only live in booths, uh, but we also take this combination of various uh, plants, and we wave it before the Lord, again, asking for His grace and mercy. Now that we've harvested, and now we have a rainy season, now we want to harvest again. So we need the sun, and we need the rain. In literally, Jewish people, during Tabernacles in the synagogue actually pray for rain. So the prayer has been wonderfully answered today. Now, these are the booths uh, that we live in. You can't use nails. You can't cover the top. You have to be able to see the stars. And you have to be reminded that uh, that these are frail because the emphasis here is on God's protection and God's care of the children of Israel in the wilderness. And so I don't know what the... Uh, little booths were like in the wilderness that we lived in. I wasn't there. Didn't see the video. Although I could see the movie, but I, 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 I don't know if it's really in the Ten Commandments. Uh, but the children of Israel lived in frail little booths. And you know what? The rabbis tell us that we live in frail little booths too. And that we need to be completely dependent upon God for our lives, for our health, for our sustenance, for our food, for our water, for everything. And so this is a great reminder. If you're a religious Jew, and this is a Brooklyn sukkah booth, if you're a religious Jew, you need to live in the sukkah booth. Eat your meals there. If you're not that religious, you just eat your meals there. And then if you're neither of the above, you go visit someone else's sukkah. There's another sukkah booth. And uh, I am the photographer. And uh, these were taken in Brooklyn just recently. And they're beautifully decorated. So we usually have fruit hanging down to remind us of the fruit harvest and, and so on. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles not only points us back to the tabernacles we lived in of God's care in that day, but also points us forward. So in Leviticus chapter uh, 14, verses 16 through 19, we are told that in the kingdom... That even the Gentiles will come and live, march up to Jerusalem to meet the king and live in boots. And if they don't celebrate tabernacles, they don't they they are going to have a drought. Why a drought? Because it's the festival where we pray for water. So if you don't do it, then you don't get water. The rabbis tell us that this is the holiday. That speaks of Gentile inclusion because of Levit- uh, Zechariah 14. And so there's a, a very clear understanding that when the Messiah comes, that the fulfillment of Genesis 12:3 will happen, and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. because in that day, the whole earth will become God's sukka booth because the knowledge of the Lord, will fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. Gentiles will have an option to go to Jerusalem, hopefully one that they will take. And so we look forward to that uh, glorious day. Just to read it, uh, let me just read the bold part. And it will come that whichever of the families of the earth do not go to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If Egypt doesn't go up, no rain uh, and the plagues with which the Lord spites the nations will, who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now, I'm just putting that up there as a reminder so when you get to the kingdom, don't forget to celebrate the Feast of Booths, okay? Because you could be in deep trouble. Of course, we like to say, well, this won't happen to believers. Well, your guess is as good as mine. It doesn't say that. <laughs> but Maybe. Do I think that there will be a literal festival of booths in the kingdom? Why not? The king is Jewish. Finally, uh, in John chapter 7, Jesus celebrated tabernacles as well. You know, it was no joke for me that I didn't see Christmas in the New Testament because I was laying for it to be a non-Jewish book. But the more I read, the more Jewish it was. And the more I read, the more Jew- J- Jewish Jesus was. And by by the time I finished it, I realized that actually he was my Messiah. And so Jesus celebrated Passover. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. And Jesus celebrated Tabernacles. What more could you want? He was Jewish. And so he made one of his most astounding statements on on tabernacles, There was a ceremony in the temple called the ceremony of the water drawing where the Levitical priests and the Levitical orchestra, well, the, actually the, the little band, would march down to the pool of Siloam where there was living water, flowing water. They would fill up big urns of water, march back to the temple area and march around the altar seven times shouting hallelujah, Hosanna, Lord save us. And at the end of the 7th march around, it was a big altar, they would pour the urns of water onto the base of the, of the uh, altar. Now this all happened on the 7th day, the great day of the feast, called Hoshana Ravah, the great day of the feast. And in Jewish tradition, already by the time of the 1st century, there was a link between water flowing on tabernacles and the outpouring of the Spirit in Joel's chapter, Joel chapter 2. And so in the Jewish mindset, as we were pouring out water on, on the edge of the altar, we were thinking about the last days because Tabernacles is that last day holiday for Jewish people. And there was the inclusion of the Gentiles and the establishment of the kingdom and the coming of the Messiah. So it was all wrapped together. So when we were doing that, marching around, shouting, Lord, save us, Lord, save us, and pouring out the water, we would say, Lord, save us. Lord, pour your spirit upon us. Lord, establish your kingdom. Fill the earth with your glory. All those things were happening. And uh, in Talmudic writing, and even in Josephus, it was said, you have not seen joy unless you witness the ceremony of the water droid. And it was loud in the temple. There were people shouting and singing, and the instruments were playing, and the tambourines and the drums were, were going wild. And it was in the middle of that cacophonous moment that a young, itinerant rabbi from the Galilee stepped forward. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Hoshana Rabbah, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So for me, as a follower of Jesus, Tabernacles does point me to a future day that I'm really looking forward to, the second coming of Christ, when the kingdom will be established and his glory will fill the earth, and Jews and Gentiles will be rejoicing around his throne. That's the day I look forward to. You too? But there's already been a wonderful first coming fulfillment where God sent his spirit, where God did send his Messiah, the true king of Israel. And you and I today, we don't have to wait, can be filled with his spirit. We can drink and have life if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who's the fulfillment of all the Jewish holidays. In him we have rest, in him we have redemption. In him we have the spirit of God, in him we have hope. And he's the one who will keep us through the wilderness of this life until he returns and brings us into his sukkah booth that will encompass the whole earth. The festivals of Israel tell the story, the story of redemption. They point to a Messiah, a glorious Messiah, who will who already came once and will surely come again.